Heavenly Father, in your goodness and mercy, we pray that you will help us to set aside the, the worries of the week gone, the worries of the week ahead, and to look attentively, attentively to you, our Lord and Master. We pray that you will help us to be attentive to your word and attentive to how we follow you. Amen. So last week, a bridge over a river collapsed in India, in Gujarat, in a western province. 141 people drowned or were crushed. What was your reaction as you came across that on the news? If you're a Christian here, or if you're a Christian watching, what was your Christian response to that kind of news? Or maybe you saw the footage or read reports of the Halloween crowd in Seoul in South Korea where 120 people died in the chaos. What was your reaction? What was your Christian reaction to that kind of tragedy? There are two very common reactions which come to the surface very quickly across many cultures around the world and across all of human history. And it goes something like this. What goes around comes around. The universe keeps the school. Maybe we call it karma. Maybe in a future life we come back and reap the rewards or pay the penalties for what we've done. But it's a simple action. Actions have consequences at some point. And it sort of crystallizes as a little sort of principle that people use, that bad things come to bad people and good things come to good people. It's as simple as, I've got the kids with us, have we? It's as simple as Father Christmas. Oh, he's a horrible man, isn't he? Have you been a good boy? Have you been a good girl? Because good children are loved and get presents. Naughty children aren't loved and don't get presents. If you're good, there's a lovely pile under the tree. You're bad, the tree is empty. It's very cruel. It gets very cruel very quickly, that kind of principle, doesn't it? If a bad thing happens to me, must I therefore be a bad person? If good things happen to me, maybe I'm a better person than somebody else. How does that work when you're dealing with a crowd? With 120 or 140? It's actually the logic of many of Job's friends in the Old Testament book of Job. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, so if a bad thing has happened to you, you must be bad. And it gets very shallow and very unreal very quickly. And so people go to another option, a very option, which is, well, there actually is no justice, there's no plan, there's no judge, and there's no one who keeps the school. There are no rules. It is random. So if good things happen to you, enjoy them while they do, and then forget about them. If bad things happen to you, endure them, take it, and then forget about them. There's no pity, there's no mercy, there's no law. 
And it also becomes very cruel very quickly, doesn't it? You can't turn a blind eye. When, when things go wrong, when, bad, when people do bad things, you want to be able to say, that action is wrong, and to give a reason as to why it's wrong. And if the universe has no laws, has no principles, if the universe just trots on, there is no justice, no plan, no judge, then you can't say that an action actually is wrong. It just happens. Now, you probably find that you can't live with either of those two for too long, and so most people flip-flop. Have you spotted this? You're a nasty person in your office. And when the cheat at work gets found out, ha, he had it coming. I knew it would happen. And when the cheat at work doesn't get found out, that's typical. There's no justice, is there? We flip between the two. Now, today's section, which David read to us just now, Jesus tackles exactly this question. Do good things only happen to good people? Do bad things only happen to bad people? What happens when bad things happen to good people? If bad things happen to you, does it prove that you are a bad person? What about the rest? Just, I'm just better than somebody else I can see in the street. And what Jesus will say today to those kind of questions, which are very contemporary questions, is it's very simple, very clear, very direct, very short, and he says it twice. It's so short and clear, I, I've almost, I said to Mark this morning, I almost don't want to say anything, I just want to leave his words hanging there, because anything I say will make it less clear and simple and direct than he is. The trouble is this, most of us won't like what he's going to say. So if you've closed your, the Red Bible in front of you or behind you, Grab it again, page 1046, if you're going uh, watching it on your phone or something. We're in Luke chapter 13, looking at verses 1 to 5. And we have this shocking pink microphone. And that's our visual reminder that this is Jesus who's got the microphone. This is Jesus speaking on his terms, okay? So, problem, take it up with him. Jesus has been asked about two sto stories which were in the, in the news. Did you see that? He talks about the Galileans and the Tower of Siloam. And it looks something like this. In Galilee, Pilate had committed what we would call a military atrocity. He was a nasty guy, Pilate. And the question that comes before Jesus is, you've got some people from Galilee who are preparing to do a sacrifice. They were slaughtered, and Pilate deliberately mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrificial animals. It was a deliberate piece of war on morality. And in wartime, or under military control, that is often what happens to morality, doesn't it? People bomb civilians. They starve children. It is a really clear example of vicious, harsh, martial law. And you know that it doesn't stay in the pages of the history books, do you? The other story, the Tower of Siloam, so Siloam just looks like a tragic accident. 
there was a tower, probably a water tower, and in a freak moment of failure, it collapsed. And it was an awful disaster. And people died. So there were two stories in the news that people brought to Jesus. A, a military atrocity and an awful freak accident. Now, did you notice that the question Jesus asked? He asked it twice. He says this. Down there, first of all, in verse 2. Jesus says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think there's a sort of a law of consequence? They're worse, so they got punished, you didn't? Or, verse 4, those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? In other words, there's a sort of a sliding scale and bad things only really happen to bad people. Is that how you're working with? The people who died are worse than the people who survived? Well, presumably some people in the crowd were saying, yes, if bad things happen, they're obviously bad people, or at least they're worse than me, which is why I'm standing here before you today and they're not. Presumably some people in the crowd were saying, no, bad things happen to good people all the time. A collapsing tower has no moral view. It fell. End of. And presumably there were some people who were saying, well, I, I don't know, it can't be either of those two, because you can't live by either of those two principles. Is there another way? Is there another answer? And Jesus says, yes, there is. And to answer, I need to have a warning. I'm not quite doing a trigger warning, but I'm jolly nearly. To answer this, Jesus uses words that we might not like. He uses concepts and arguments that some of us here this morning might find offensive. He draws conclusions you might not wish us to read out loud and in public. In fact, to give you a fair warning, I think Jesus breaks the number one commandment in our culture at the moment. The number one commandment in our culture. We'll come back to that. So look at what he says in response to these two stories. The Galilean massacre, the tower collapse. He says it twice, deliberately and identically. Verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Verse 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. In his answer, there are four elements. Here's the first part. Jesus broadens the circle. The stories that have been brought to him are of a few people. It's local news. But the word that Jesus uses is all. The question is not, are you better than the few of them? It's not a them and us question. It is all of us, or at least in Jesus' terms, all of you. He deliberately doesn't put inside the circle, himself inside the circle, does he? All of us. The crowd says we must be better than them. Are we better than them? Because bad things only happen to bad people. It happened to them and not to us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are all in the same position. To use a word he uses very often, 
We are sinners. And not just a little bit here and there. We are drenched in it. We are sin-soaked. Not to say we're as bad as we could possibly be, but there is not a square inch of us that is clean. It riddles all the way through us. All, he says. And then second, having broadened the circle, he underlines the danger. Did you see again? Twice he says the word, you will all perish. You will all perish. What do you think he means? Do you think he means that we're all equally at risk of a military, a piece of military violence? That we're all equally at risk of our building collapsing on us today? You know the answer, don't you? Because you, you know what he says. He says it elsewhere and repeatedly, there will be a judgment day before God. We will all, without exception, be found guilty. We all, without exception, deserve punishment. And that punishment is what he calls here perishing. Elsewhere, he talks about eternal death. He talks about hell. That's the scenario that Jesus is setting up for us today. And we say to ourselves, me? Really? I mean, look, over there, there is the drug dealer. Over there is the mass murderer. Look at them. I'm better than them. Can't I be better than them? Mustn't I be better than them? At which point we are saying exactly what the crowd was saying. Aren't I better than them? And Jesus says that's an irrelevant question. Forget the comparison. By God's holy standards, you are all in the wrong let me, let me give you a little illustration of it. Uh, and this may get me into trouble on YouTube, because that's what YouTube does, but never mind. Um, one of the consequences of climate change is happening at the moment in southeast Australia. We had some friends over from Sydney uh, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> and they said Sydney is basically predicted to have pretty much non-stop rain between now and Christmas. That is Sydney going out of spring into summer. Brett Graham, my friend, is a, is a volunteer firefighter. He's not planning to fight many fires. They're getting the pumps out to clear out the drains and the, and the, and the houses and things. Now, we're not experiencing that. Does that mean the people in Sydney are worse criminals than... I don't answer that calmly, okay? Does that mean the people in Sydney are worse than us? That they are worse attackers on our climate? No, of course not. It doesn't mean they're the worst people on the planet, but we all know that we contribute, and we all reap the consequences. And we can't say, ha, 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 that's just Australia, nothing to do with me, Gov. And Jesus says, in exactly the same way, just because there are other people suffering consequences that you don't, does not mean they're worse than you, or that you'll escape. It means, perhaps, they've received an early warning. See, the universe doesn't keep the score, but God keeps the score. 
And God says, we will all perish. I said there were four elements. Here's number three. And it's a glimmer of light. Jesus says again twice, unless. Unless, verse three. Unless, verse five. Do you see why that's a glimmer of light? Jesus is saying, but I can open a door on an alternative future. The brilliant glimmer. He says it's a universal problem, but there is an escape route. It means, friends, we are not trapped forever in the consequences of our bad choices. No Christian is trapped forever in the consequences of their bad choices. So, how do you open that door to the alternative future? Well, Jesus says, again, it's one word, and again, it's twice. It's among the most unpopular words he ever said. Do you spot it? Verse 3, unless you repent. Verse 5, unless you repent. That is not a word to give you the warm fuzzies, is it? If I asked you to describe that word, you might say well, it's a really harsh word. It's a, it's a finger-pointy word. It's shrill. It's judgmental. It is really nasty. Let me make it harder for you. Deliberately harder. Flip back a few pages with me to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's Gospel. I'm staying within Luke. I'm not going to try and dazzle you with, with false evidence. We're on page 1033, Luke chapter 5. And this is one of Jesus' summaries of why he came. Did Jesus come for good people? Did he come for holy people? Did he come for people who were sorted out? Did he come for people who liked church services? Chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came for broken families. He came for broken failures. He came for people who will say, yep, sinner, that's a label I wear. And did Jesus come to give us a hug, an understanding smile, a manly handshake? Now Jesus turned up and says, well, here's the answer. You need to repent. Or turn with me to the end of Jesus' ministry, page 1062. So by the time we read Luke chapter 24, Jesus has taught everything he intends to teach. He's done everything he intends to do. He has suffered, died, been in the tomb, and he has risen from the dead on the third day. And these are his last final instructions for his people. Luke chapter 26, verse 40, uh, 24, verse 46. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He's talking to his close disciples. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
It's the R word again. There's a wonderful future, forgiveness of our sins. And what is the gateway? You need to repent. You say, Chris, okay, I get it. You're saying we need to repent. What do I need to repent of? Well, first off, I am not saying you need to repent. Jesus is saying we need to repent, and I am in that bucket too, okay? I'm not putting myself, he's got the microphone, not me. Second off, if you ask Jesus, so okay, look at my week, what should I repent of? We're coming to him with a list. Come on, Jesus, give me the two things I need to stop doing and the five things I need to start so I can go tick, tick, tick. And friends, if you've been around St. James for a while, you will know what Jesus thinks about those kind of lists. Why does Jesus give us no examples here? No top three, no for instances. Is this because there's really nothing at all to repent of? This is merely hypothetical? It is what mathematicians would call an empty set? No, that it's precisely the reverse, 180 degrees. Jesus is saying we need to repent from soup to nuts. In every moment, in every thought, in every action, constantly. If you know the word repent, you will know that it means putting your life in a wholly new direction. All of it constantly for life. Thirty-first of October was Halloween, but it wasn't just Halloween. Those of you who like to follow religious dates will also know that that is what is called Reformation Day. Marks the day when an obscure little monk called Martin Luther took a drawing pin and a sheet of paper and pinned ninety-five statements to a notice board in his university in Wittenberg. Quite a common thing to do. We just pinned it. We, we would do it on something on social media, but he pinned it to the board. 95 of them. And in doing those 95 statements, he started a religious revolution, effect. I'm not going to go through all 95. Here's number one. Number one that he pinned to the door. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to one of repentance. You say, how is that possible? Why is it necessary? Remember, repentance isn't just saying sorry. (coughs) Repentance is putting Jesus first In everything, it's opening your arms, your heart to him and saying, I am drenched in sin. There is not a square inch of me that is clean. I am 100% in the wrong. I am 100% in need of your forgiveness and grace. And I stand only before you on the basis of that promise. But there is repentance and forgiveness. Repentance is not, and this is one of the battles that that Luther was facing in his day, repentance is not turning up to church with the seven things from last week that you need to confess and getting them off your conscience. Tick. Repentance is saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and my forgiver. I owe you everything. 
Now, I said that Jesus broke the number one commandment of our culture. Here it is. When Jesus says we must repent or perish, is he being judgmental? Because that's the one thing we're not supposed to be, isn't it? When Jesus says we must, must repent or perish, is Jesus being judgmental? The mood of our culture increasingly is, I make my life choices according to the authentic me. And all I can ask of you, but I must ask it of you, is to affirm me, to commend me, to reassure me, and above all, do not judge me. And Jesus comes and says, you must repent. Daily. Always. Put me first as Lord and Saviour. Our culture says I must love myself. Jesus says I must deny myself. Our culture says this is the way to live. And Jesus says follow me and you will die. It is a complete overhaul of the direction of your life. What Jesus says goes. Whether what he says is fashionable or deeply unfashionable. Whether what he says is on trend or out of step. Whether what he says is right on or illegal. Repentance is daily heart surgery before Jesus so that you can know forgiveness and daily spiritual power. It's on our heart, isn't it? That's where it happens. It's the whole direction of life. It might be, I don't know who's here today, I don't know who's watching, it might be one life decision that you made years ago which haunts you. Or it might be a whole series of choices that you currently love, but you know what Jesus really thinks. It's not that the universe keeps the score and there's some kind of blind law of consequences. God keeps the score. And without repentance, the end is that we perish. But with repentance, God ceases to keep score. He throws away the list and will not allow us to keep one. With Jesus as Lord and forgiver, there is forgiveness for everything we've done in the past, power to follow him and keep putting him first in the present, and promise of eternal life and perfection in the future. That is all wrapped up in the position that says, I repent and I put Jesus first as my Lord and my forgiver. I'm going to be quiet for a moment because I realize that Jesus has said some quite straightforward and uncomfortable stuff. And I kind of want to leave you looking at Luke 13, 1 to 5. The, com the comedian W.C. Fields was once found in a hospital bed with his Bible, flicking it through, and he was not known to be in any way a Christian. And his fr one of his friends said, well, what are you doing with a Bible? <laughs> I'm looking for loopholes. I've shown you the loophole. Unless that is the glimmer of light which points you to an alternative future.
Be quiet for a moment. You do business with God. Lord Jesus, these words cut deep and hard. Some of us live in fear of the idea that actions lead to consequences in our universe. And we fear what we've done in the past coming back to haunt us. Some of us feel deep grievance and injustice because despite what we have done for the good, bad things keep happening. But all of us do that without reference to you. We think we're better than other people. But you warn us very clearly that unless we, in this I, repent, we will all perish. So this morning, for some of us, it may well be the very first time where we say, Jesus, I get it. I realize how deeply soaked in sin I am. But there is no chance for me outside repenting and putting you first as my leader and forgiver. And I do that now. I no longer trust in my goodness and being better than others. And I trust instead only in your goodness. Oh Jesus, I repent.